This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 78 of Everyday Buddhism, Making Every Day Better. In this episode, I talk with Melissa Moore, PhD, an educator in Buddhism and contemplative psychology. She has been a student of Jogam Trumpa Rinpoche since she was 25 and a senior teacher in the Shambhala community for the past 40 years. Melissa is the co-founder of Karuna Training, a certification course in contemplative psychology offered as a cohort training since 1996 in eight countries. She teaches throughout the U.S., Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, and currently serves as the executive director of Karuna North America. In our conversation, we discuss Melissa's latest book, The Diamonds Within Us, an approachable and contemporary look at how to integrate ancient Tibetan Buddhist teachings in our everyday lives. Among other things, we talk about how important it is to befriend ourselves just as we are by directly assessing the wisdom of emotions through deep listening and mindfulness to get to know and get comfortable with our vulnerabilities, which then leads to finding our greatest strengths. And then we broaden our true compassion for ourselves to work with others, addressing fears and challenges in relationships. I so enjoyed this conversation with Melissa, as you will notice by our um constant stream of giggling, and I hope you'll continue to listen to the talk with Melissa to glimpse ways to discover the diamonds within you. This conversation starts now. Okay, Melissa, I've been looking so forward to talking with you about your book, about your life, (laughs) about Anything you can share with us from your long history, you seem to have touched Buddhism and psychology, which is sort of your uh, unique, you know, uh, conjunction here. Um, I, you've touched them both since you were very young. So I'm excited to talk to you and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for having me on. Yes. So um, I believe, first of all, before we get started, I told you this off mic, but 
off recording, but um, I believe your book, The Diamonds Within Us, is a definitive how-to book. <laughs> I like how-to books in Buddhism. Um, like I, one of my uh, bylines of this uh, podcast is tips and tricks um, for everyday Buddhism, because I think Buddhism can have a, a way too serious stigma um, and scare people away. And, and unfortunately, you might lose somebody that way. So I think the more friendly we are about the whole thing, the better off. Right. So um, one of the things I, uh, I shared at the beginning in the intro, um, I shared a little bit about your life. But um, since I mentioned just a bit ago that you seemingly have been intrinsically tied to Buddhism and psychology from a very young age, um, as I read your book, I kept discovering these profound nuggets of wisdom that I feel could have only been realized through years of disciplined Dharma practice. So mm -hmm. what I'd like you to do is bring me and my listeners up to date in your words um, about your experience in both psychology and the Dharma and the flavor of your life experiences and person personal challenges that kind of brought you to where you are right now. <laughs> well, it's interesting because when I discovered Buddhism, of course, I wasn't looking for it whatsoever. I literally came to town with a rock and roll band in uh, <laughs> 1979 to Boulder, Colorado. And I wanted to take a dance class because I was interested in dance. And someone pointed me towards Naropa Institute on the Boulder Mall. And I took a dance class and I I hated it. I hated it because they <laughs> meditated at the beginning and I thought they were all elephants. I was very judgmental. And um, and I knew that about myself. I was enough aware that I knew. And then at the end of the class, I met someone who told me all about Chugyam Trungpa Rinpoche and, and he made it sound very exotic. So um, I ended up coming... I mean, I got very excited about Trungpa Rinpoche, and then I looked up the situation in Kansas City, where I was living at the time. I again went to a program, learned how to meditate, hated it. I did not, I did not have the wherewithal or self even kindness to sit with myself. It was, I literally was in fetal position after sitting the first time. So I was someone who carried a lot of trauma and a lot of um wildness into the meditation <laughs> arena and uh, but I like the people and the people were kind of wild and um, I that was my magnet and so I literally ended up in front of Trung Premche who was giving a refuge ceremony like two weeks later and he didn't show up till two in the morning and <laughs> outrageous you know and and it and it, I was furious about it. And it took me eight years to sort of realize that I was studying the Dharma and to realize that I could take him as a teacher because he was very scary. 
character. And basically, I wanted to go to Naropa because it was a real happening thing there. And I didn't, they only offered, I already had my BA and they offered two master's degrees. And one of them was in Buddhist studies, and I wasn't interested in that. <laughs> so I went into the Buddhist psychology program because that was the only other master's they had, Buddhist con uh, contemplative psychotherapy. And somehow I got in and I, I'm so grateful that I did. It was really a mishap and, um, or one of these, what we call auspicious coincidences of right. meeting my path because here I have spent most of my life teaching contemplative psychology. I took it out of the training of therapists. So um, I, I would say that uh, it was a long time taming my mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But once, and that came through recognizing and a lot of hard, hard luck um, lessons about wherever you go, your mind follows you. <laughs> and then learning how to sit with myself, befriend myself, and really find the power of and the potency of my mind and my heart. And so I was, in a sense, raised by the Buddha Dharma in that way, or you could say um, uh, mannered or brought up because I had such a kind of wild upbringing that I literally learned how to eat, to set the table and eat with a knife and fork. It, those kind of teachings were part of the Shambhala path. And, and I think Trung Rinpoche at the time found many Westerners quite barbarian. <laughs> and so he wanted us to, you know, you know, he took a bunch of, anti-war hippies and got everybody to wear suits and ties and dress up and speak to each other with some manners and i felt like i was sort of raised by that culture I how old were you just as an only 24 yeah. but I, was, I would say a young 24 when i arrived i was also a trust fund baby so i was very irresponsible around money and finances so when my i finally did get accepted to naropa my father cut me off and that was the best thing that Whoa. ever happened to me because literally i had to learn how to open a banking account and write checks and pay my bill you know and it was a very rude awakening and a very good awakening and that was all part of my time to grow up now yeah um, you know, and that came hand in hand with learning how to sit with myself so interesting yeah so it was a, it was almost a uh a, a, a partnership of growing up um as a person as a, as as a, a and growing up within the dharma the buddha dharma i mean right and as you know, Trung Primche, it was a wild tradition. Shambhala has its reputation for being outrageous and wild. And, and it yes, was. Yes. Could you say a little something about that now so we get that yeah. out of the way? <laughs> well, just that I can say that it was the 70s and 80s, and things were very different then in, in context. But I can say for myself, if it hadn't have been wild, like the kind of... Um, free love and free i mean there was a lot of alcohol and there was a lot of uh intoxicants running around and all of that if it hadn't been like that i wouldn't have been interested right, right. that's that's where i was and so i felt like it was kind of um 
a particular teaching teacher arising in a particular time bringing uh, a very radical dharma to the west and we young students really didn't know what we were receiving i uh, maybe some people did i'll speak for myself i didn't really know what i was receiving and had no idea of the profundity of the path and um in many ways Chung Premche, he has a very outrageous tradition, but he's an incredibly orthodox teacher in terms of insisting that people learn how to sit in meditation in a kind of Dzogchen, pure style before they get all the bells and whistles with the bells and dharmarus and visualization. It takes a lot of grounding. So he was very traditional in that way. And I'm really glad he was because I really... Um, learned how to sit on the ground and synchronize my self with myself <laughs> and um, find my basic health or my basic sanity. I could actually evoke that. And I felt like I really tested my sanity and I, I have it. Mm -hmm. And it, it was in an, a wild environment that let me emerge brilliantly sane. Isn't that weird? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it isn't weird. And and as we will go on to talk about that, because your book talks about that quite a bit, is that, and it, that's a, a, a pretty typical, it, a, like I come from the Tibetan tradition, as I mentioned to you, and my listeners know that, um, is you don't hear that a lot in a lot of other Buddhist traditions, but you do hear that in the Tibetan tr tradition where, where your biggest failing, like whether it be anger or uh, jealousy or, or ignorance or whatever, is your biggest strength. Yes, if, if you transform it, it's, it's the transformation part that's tricky, though. <laughs> it really is. And it's a, a moment to moment, um, according to our teachings or the teachings that I, I disseminate in Karuna training, it has to do with our relationship to space in everyday moment. Like how much, how much perspective do we have in the moment? How much space do we have around our thoughts? Do right. we believe everything we think, like hook, line, and sinker? That's what's true. Or do we stand back and allow our thoughts to kind of float there and look at them and like, is that true? Is there any space for discernment? Because mm -hmm. these days we're so inundated with information that right, right. you get go down the rabbit hole of believing everything you think. You know, <laughs> Which so. is why we're in the trouble we're in, actually. I think <laughs> um, that kind of explains a lot of things. Um, <laughs> but before we go too far into that part, first explain what is, you know, contemplative psychology. I think almost anybody can like kind of, you know, uh, analysis, figure out what that might be, but there, it is an actual real. Yeah. Uh, trademark thing and what is karuna training because because okay. this book the diamonds within us it, it the 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 uh the the subtitle is uncovering brilliant sanity through contemplative psychology um it which is attracted to a lot of people but if they don't if they start seeing Karuna training and all this other stuff and maybe even Shambhala they might be scared away. So can you tell me tell us what is contemplative psychology and karuna training from the perspective of karuna training yeah thank you <laughs> uh well contemplative psychology is what we have titled 
the certificate that you get. You get a certificate in contemplative psychology, and it's just like any other kind of psychological approach, such as EMDR or cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a specialization or a view or an approach that draws on Vajrayana Buddhism. But in its nature, contemplative you know, generally means prayer or um, you know, um, can mean like uh, communing with um, the sacred, so to speak. Mm. So this has the, the it, in our context, it has much more to do contemplative meaning up to date in time. So the psychology occurs in the present moment. Ah, that we're working in the present moment because all the information we need is present now because it's the only moment we have. So everything that occurred before is present in our body, speech, and mind now. Mm -hmm. And everything that will happen after has already, is being affected by what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. So this is a very potent moment. Yeah. Most of the time we miss it, right? So when we work with people, it's not that we have to go back into our histories. People can do that and there's nothing wrong with that, but we're not looking to our history for the information because all the information is here right now and what we experience. So we become very fine tuned to our contemplative experience in the present moment. And we make friends with that and we befriend it in such a way because that this body and our breath and our emotions and the way we hold it in our mind is our tool for liberation because we can in every moment, things are arising, right? Mm. You're sitting there, you're driving down the street and someone pulls out in front of you and it's mm. like reaction, right? You have that moment to be awake or you get the whatever kind of email with a headline. <laughs> These ordinary things that happen to us, right? That we, we can feel ourselves constrict in the present moment and we can train ourselves to be attuned to that bodily awareness of our energies. And we can learn to befriend that, embrace that in such a way as a teacher that it begins to bring us closer to, because all energy, all reactions are driven by wisdom, but they don't always come out that way, right? Right. They're not as reactive or aggressive, but all aggression has wisdom in it, but it doesn't always come out that way. It can come out very abusive and harmful, but in the core of it, there's some kind of seeing or some kind of um, clear seeing attached to it. So each of the energies uh, we call in Buddhism, the kleshas, the ones that trap mm -hmm. us and, and that we become habituated in, each one of those has a wisdom element and that we can really become through these practices in contemplative psychology that were developed at Naropa Institute by Chugyam Trungpa through Maitri space awareness, we can become very attuned to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the energies as they're arising in our body and begin to not only work with ourselves, which is, I feel something we should learn in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. you know, how right, do we right. sit with discomfort? Right, right. It's sanity. But also how we work with others. And that doesn't, we've relegated that to the therapists, unfortunately, <laughs> or we've relegated all that to the priests or something, but we all need to know how to negotiate 
and our relationships. So Karuna training, Karuna means compassion, and it's taking these teachings, these Buddhist psychology or contemplative psychology teachings into everyday life, to everyday application for anyone. So I have bank people, people who have businesses, all ages, people who do, one doesn't need, and if they are a therapist, because a lot of people who do therapeutic work are interested, there's a certain kind of unlearning that has to happen because it's Uh authenticity training, complete authenticity training. And, um, And it's a kind of container that we create, a kind of environment that we create where we use the relationships we have with each other in the circle, in the cohort, to awaken to our mental conditioning. That's a great answer. And I'm glad you um, gave some um, definitions for those of my audience who did not know what Karuna meant, because that would yeah. be my next question. Um, and, and you know, you go into this a little bit in the book, and I think it's kind of important to like touch on now, is I think compassion is a much bandied about term, um, but without a whole lot of um, substance behind it sometimes or a confusion more more, like you talk about that. Like it's not empathy. It's not sympathy. It's, it's a compassion. It's a whole different thing from a Buddhist perspective. It's it's, yeah. yeah. From a Buddhist perspective, just like ego is a whole different thing from a Buddhist perspective. So we have to know what language we're talking. Right. But right. Yeah, this whole thing that I, I, I'm a one woman campaign um, in my circles, of course, many of the students I work with and many of the faculty I work with all use this word self-compassion. I don't, don't like that because um, mainly we have a word called Maitri, which we don't have a translation for that means loving kindness. And, and it's a very specific kind of loving kindness, which is what I feel people are using for the word self-compassion, but it's a kind of loving kindness of loving yourself as you are with all your horns and your warts, not when you get better, but when you really messed up, you love yourself. That's my tree. We don't have a translation for that. So people are calling it self-compassion, but compassion from a Buddhist perspective is selfless. Complete. There's no occupation with me. You're open and present and not there in the sense that you <laughs> usually are. Yeah. And that's a very hard place to get to because yeah. we're there and present and commenting in our head about what we're going to say next. Yeah. It's not present. So that's compassion. It's natural to us, compassion. We, we see that's right. how come movies work and how come all these things, it's natural to us to feel the feelings of others fully and completely. And, you know, and, and it's beyond sympathy. Oh, poor person. You know, then, you know, you've gotten into the mix, right? Or empathy. I feel what you feel. That's unnecessary, you know, feeling, you know, just connection. And it's so precious. And I feel that in our days of defining everything and also this Zoom world and all that we're (laughs) The miracles of it, right? Yeah. Also, it's hard. We're missing that heart to heart. Yeah. Deep. 
humans that we had around the campfires at night and yeah yeah and you know um you and i know this because of our age (laughs) others others you know i don't think do even even i'm not i mean even the uh, gen xers and the the edge of the millennials i think have have a disembodied sense of being embodied, if you know what I mean, <laughs> because they, they've all been connected to their phones. And, you know, I, I many times think about that as about how it was, you know, this sounds terrible. It sounds like, you know, I, I walked 50 miles to school in a snowstorm, you know, here I go. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but I have to tell you, I do often think about this and, and I'm trying not to be an old get off my lawner, but um, it's, it is, I think about how it was to just, to just like to talk, just to talk to someone um, without ever seeing them on Facebook, without ever texting them. We used to drop by each other's houses. Houses, God forbid forbid anybody does that now because we say, how rude. You didn't even text me first. (laughs) Isn't that funny? It is. I know I uh, it's it's humbling to think about it like I always wonder how I got anywhere without my phone. <laughs> <laughs> well I know I don't get anywhere without my phone now or my <laughs> GPS in my car I mean it's, I won't it, it won't happen um so but yeah I I really it it is so different or just the 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 many hours where you would just stare out the window you know, I mean, it's like, that's what you did. You stared out the window or you, you actually read a book where, you know, I know that's people. What I loved books. about the pandemic. I felt like the pandemic as much terrible sorrow that arose from it, particularly all the deaths and the children left behind. And so we can't step over all of that pain. Right. And it was a huge pause button on fast paced life in a way that for me myself that's one reason i got the book done but also (laughs) like time i sat there when it came down i was in mexico when it hit when the pandemic hit and i i remember when i got home finally which was a fiasco i sat for like two or three days just staring out the window realizing (laughs) wow you know (laughs) yeah every everything stopped yeah yeah and it was such a, a phenomena that um and of course, I sit in a very privileged situation, so I didn't go. I was ready to roll up the sidewalks with Karuna. You know, I was like, okay, well, because I did everything, all my t- trainings in person. Oh, yeah. Years, up, yeah. Up to, you know, everything, all these retreats and everything. So then we were like ready to shut shut down Karuna. And the students were like, wait, this is when we need more than ever. So you know, for years, the younger students have been telling me, bring Karuna online, bring Karuna online. So I was forced. Yeah. And there, I actually feel there's a lot of things that do work online. They do. Yeah, exactly. And there's exactly. some things that don't. And so, you know, I'm trying, I'm in the middle of discerning that because I have a new, I'm trying another model and I'll try another model next year because of a hybrid, because this whole, you know, there's something about, I'm teaching a perceptive, a perspective and a perception practice. And so needing 
to be in the environment in such a way with people. At Zoom, we get a half body, right? Yeah. And there's something really different when you're. Yeah. And, you know, but in some, I, I was just talking about this with my partner the other day about the, 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 about the p- pandemic and the pause and that some people never did realize it. So they never learned the lesson. They were just so focused on getting things back to how it was oh, pre-pandemic. Oh. It's like, I think, you know, if, particularly if you have a spiritual practice, it was easier to pick up on. But I think if you were rushing around and you just stopped, you were just a lot of people. I I've talked to a lot of people People with kids. Yeah. It was just very frustrating and, and, and they wanted it to be over and I get that. But there's another thing that like you mentioned about like you weren't online and then you had to get online. I have always been virtual, so I didn't have to do that. But a lot of um, Buddhist temples, weren't online and they had to come online and what a boom for people who were trying looking for a little bit of dharma they had a little time they were able to 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 sample some of those things so there there's you know there's always that good stuff but But, okay so and that that actually gets me to um uh not knowing see yeah one, because it's a good, I think that's a good segue because, you know, um, it's, I don't know mind and, you know, there's so many great Zen stories about not knowing in beginner's mind, like the master right. and the tea and the, uh, there's a, there's a million not knowing great stories, but not knowing is something that was so frustrating to many in the pandemic because it was well, what the heck is this? We don't know how to handle this. And we don't, you know, we no experience with things that we didn't do already, or where is it going to go? And that's why I think there was so many uh, people like um, uh, going to their separate corners in their tribes uh, because they, right. they looked to somebody who told them what was going to happen. And so then they believed huh. that. And then the other person looked to whoever that, but yet nobody really knew the scientists didn't know because no, it we was still a don't. novel virus. Yeah. yeah. And we still, don't. still don't know. And we still don't know. And so the, so, but not knowing the not knowing mind is is so important to Buddha Dharma, the practice, and so you. It's something I talk and write about a lot. But it was, uh, you know, in our internet culture, we 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 think we have to. We think we know everything, or we think if we don't know everything, we can we Google can, it. We we can <laughs> in like one minute. I can get on my phone and I'll know that, and then I'll know that for sure, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and you wrote this about con, uh, about contemplative psychology, which I really like. I'm going to do a quote from your book. I hope you don't mind. Uh, <clears throat> contemplative psychology is a path of retraining ourselves to not make things up in our minds, but to rest in not knowing and learn to tolerate the intensity of discomfort. That was like the pandemic. We train to go toward emotional energy and open to it for the wisdom that is innate within the messiness of feelings, unquote. Loved that. Can you talk more about this process and how it relates to the overall practice that you teach? Well, I think, you know, it describes it really well. 
it's counterintuitive, like, for example, when we're sitting with anger or we're sitting with uh, even, like, for example, grief and sadness or really confusing things like the pandemic, like when we feel threatened that society or all the threats that we're facing in society with the guns today and all of that. And climate uh, change and climate right. change, all of it. So this is why I feel that contemplative psychology is so necessary for this time. And I should be training kindergartners because mm -hmm. it's this notion that being human, you are going to experience discomfort just through the simple act of birth old age, sickness, and death, death right? right? You can't get away from that. But we don't have to put uh, another hat on top of a hat <laughs> unnecessary to create the the all the ways that we create suffering, avoiding birth, old age, sickness, and death, right? Yeah. So, so that kind of understanding, first of all, and having the space and discernment on the kind of suffering that you're having is really important. And so that's kind of the mental aspect is understanding that suffering's here, that you have it, that others have it, that you're not alone. And is this suffering you're creating? Or is this suffering that just comes with being in a human body, like the loss of a child, or the, you know, the tragedies of life that we don't have any control over? floods and fires and those things. So basically um, what the training is, is to go towards that discomfort in a way and hold it close to you as a teacher, because, you know, generally we're managing our feelings in such a way that we're discoordinating, we're desynchronizing ourselves in our panic to get a, a solution together, right? right. Like either in our mind, we're trying to figure it out and our emotions, we might be acting out in one way or another and causing more harm in the, and then in our bodies running around like chickens with our heads cut off, right? So this kind of bringing ourselves together and coming close to ourselves, counterintuitive, and then taking it to heart, letting it work on us because there's wisdom within us that we don't know about. And okay. so until it dawns, which it will if we give it enough space and train ourselves on how to proceed. And I always say, if you don't know what to do, do nothing. Yeah, right, right. Which, why is, is which, is, which is wise action. I mean, that is ac yeah. action. Action right. is non-action, right? Right. So this whole notion of um, not knowing is our state all the time. It's actually <laughs> our home. It's where we live. But can we be comfortable with that? And it kind of is like being a child of illusion, right? It's like, wow, you know, it's, it's like the display <laughs> is remarkable. <laughs> and then, but it's very hard. And I've found this in myself. I've been teaching this for a very long time. But when things have gotten really extreme, i.e., Donald Trump world and all this guns <laughs> and all of this stuff. When things get extreme, I'm as reactive as the next next person. Yeah. Oh. That you don't get out of that. So the practice, it's not like we're getting anywhere, right? In <laughs> fact, the world is getting more alarming. It looks like because I think not because actually it's any different than it ever was, but the way that we're accessing it is constant. 
every little yeah. device and phone and everything we have yeah. information you know so it's coming in and us and our nervous systems frankly aren't evolved to handle it <laughs> so you know myself i have to remember like i'm as addicted to this mechanism as anyone else because you know i run my business through my phone basically. yeah she's she's holding her phone by the way <laughs> <laughs> anyway so we you know I don't know. So I think yeah. not judge that it's the, where we are, it's the mechanisms like driving a car, you know, and all the ways in which we are wired together these days. You know, I'm so glad you, you know, you revealed a bit of yourself there. Um, Cause I do it all the time. So it, welcome to my world. I mean, <laughs> It's like I, I don't hide much of anything in my podcast because I, 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 you know, I think that one of the problems that, you know, I I don't really consider myself a teacher necessarily, even though I'm empowered to teach. I just I like to can think of myself as a spiritual friend, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, because that's I think that's that's what everybody needs right now, because we're all so screwed up. I mean, really. And um, we need each other, right? We yeah, need we each need each other. Exactly. But, you know, one of the things that um, in you telling that story, I think that is I think the brilliance of what you just said was that um you know, because it started out by saying we 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 open up or go into the to to the discomfort, um, and and I think there's this natural human proclivity to believe that once we get past this little bit of discomfort, then everything is cleared away and everything will be good. <laughs> and as, as just we, better at being with discomfort <laughs> or not. Um, <laughs> or I mean, not. if we train in coming close to it and befriending it, the world is full of pain. Oh, it, it, it is. And so you just raise your gaze and take in the world you'll be crying because the truth is it's heartbreaking it is in the, and the and what you just said about the um uh you know i i've i'll just say I, i've kept saying it's like life is getting so horrible and this i mean and like you just said and that and that's how I, and it's like you know oh my god you know i'm 70 years old i i it should be getting life should be easier it shouldn't be so screwed up i shouldn't be so panicked all the time i yeah, shouldn't be so mad all the time i shouldn't be saying bad words to the I tv know. and the phone all the time this is not how it's supposed to be <laughs> i mean i think um i think really it's tmi too much, too much information coming at us 24 seven, think about it. I mean, it's pretty, if you turn on your computer or you're connected to the world through your phone, it's just, it's every. Or, or my, I got my husband, a, 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 a an e-watch for his birthday. And now the damn thing is like on his wrist constantly, <laughs> so constantly beeping. And it's like, it's amazing. It's just, you know, we're wired to, yeah, it, and it is, and you know, back in, and, and I do, that's another thing I think about, like, like I said, I clearly here I am doing the walking 29 miles to school in the snow, but it's like back in 
earlier times, you know, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, and then when I was a teenager and the, and the young adult in the uh, 70s and 80s, um, even then, there was not all that information. And we didn't know what goofy things some politician did in some other. We didn't know any of that because it wasn't that available to us. Unless, unless we read the papers constantly or we were something like that. It just wasn't that available. And so it's not our fault that it's getting hard. It's just... <laughs> It's just uh, maybe we're um, like you said, maybe we're just this is a, a, a better it's a harder training ground. Right. You know how I, they I notice for myself, like I do like often wake up and I'll look at my phone just to see what I have to do in the day. And then I've if I go into my emails, I know better than to open any emails. I just see who's written me. And then if I go to the news, oh. I know better. <laughs> it's the hard part. Um, it, to look at headlines, but not to get into the weeds because so I'm, or even if I get into the weeds with something, if I have some time and, and then I might read a special interest story, not something that's going to get me screaming at the top of my <laughs> in the shower, you know? So it's like, I've, I'm having to learn this, you know, yes. at, 66. I'm having to be incredibly discerning. And then we have a kind of rule like we're, we have um, coffee together, my husband and I, and no phone, uh, right. no phone zone. And so, I mean, this is dumb, but it's like we're having to put rules around all of it because it's, you know, anyway. Yeah, well, yeah it, it is. But let's go to a good yeah. thing now. We, okay. we spent a little we spent a little time suffering together here. And <laughs> so I'm I'm glad to be with you in all of this. Yes. Um, <laughs> but intrinsic health is a concept you used and you tied it to Buddha nature a bit. Um uh you write about intrinsic health and how it is sort of connected to Buddha nature. And I believe that the Buddha nature concept or the, I call that the opposite of original sin um, is mm -hmm. so important in learning to live a lifestyle of, of curiosity, of reflection rather than reaction. Because if we truly believe, which it's hard to convince anybody that they have that intrinsic health or Buddha nature, I find. But if we truly believe that we have that um, intrinsic health or Buddha nature, then we may not try so hard to improve ourselves. Um, That's the whole point. Yeah. And, or putting on, I thought you talked about hats on hats yeah. or putting on masks or other identities to bury what is underneath, like showing all the wonderful, healthy food you put on your Facebook. Um, yeah. Yet, yet you had just finished the McDonald's. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. it's like cultivating. We, a, 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 we a, do. And I think in that rush to improve ourselves, we're we're almost posing for ourselves rather than getting know getting to know what's really in there. Right. So yeah. Say more. Say more. Well, well, one of the chapters in my book is what is health because we have a that word has been co opted by the advertising world to mean a lot of things, right? So we put healthy, healthy. Well, what is really healthy? I mean, you know, and it is it 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 has to do much more with um, 
how we hold our experience as much as the actual things we do. And also um, this, when I'm talking about this intrinsic health, it's like a seed syllable of resilience within us. I love it. And health is an important topic because, um, uh, because we, we have this notion of, because of original sin in the West and this whole notion that we did something wrong and therefore we have to, um, you know, what is it? Confess um, and atone ourselves. Well, how that translates around health is, um, you know, I did something, or I'm, I'm unhealthy and therefore I did something wrong, right? So there's a lot of shame and blame and like a lot of people when they get diagnosed with things, it's like, how did I get this? What did I do wrong? Yeah. Instead of just understanding that despite what our diagnosis is, despite what whatever labels we might be carrying clinically, that there is a seed syllable of health in us that has to do with the capacity to synchronize our bodies, our breath, and our mind in the present moment. We can touch it. We can find this moment of wholesomeness where we're not occupied with ourselves. It's a moment of openness and there's tremendous health in that experiential health, uplifted, uprising breath, inspiration. And, and we can cultivate a relationship with that aspect takes time. And a lot of us have a lot of mental conditioning to, to the contrary. Right. Right. So I was someone like that. And so, um, yeah, this is why I no longer practice in a therapeutic thing because I feel like the whole medical model is so colonized to make wrong, particularly women, but also yeah. people of color and everything else. The, the kind of um, uh, top-down labeling and diagnostic work, even though most people who practice understand there's a difference between the languaging around it. It's how you hold someone. And if you come in, like I used to, work with people who suffered with florid psychosis, there's millions of moments of clarity in the midst of chronic psychosis. It's not a solid state of mind, like no state of mind is solid. And so in Europa, we're kind of trained in the clinical world to offer ourselves as a vehicle of intrinsic sanity when we're working with disturbed people. And people feel that. They experience that. They get it. They go, oh, human being, right? It's just a feelable um, context of warmth and openness. And, you know, the nervous system lets go, right? And then, so this is, you know, this psychological world, it's a very young science. It's used to harm a lot of people. It's it's, uh, got a lot of, as we say, drip, you know, that's a Tibetan word, drip. Right, it's right, right. Like, like karma on it. It's got a lot of drip on it. And and um, and so one has to be incredibly discerning around these concepts and ideas and how they're applied. Yeah. And, you know, say just 
uh, explain seed syllable. I mean, I understand it because but I was Vajrayana. Is, yeah. It's like the very, um, um, exactly like, well, <clears throat> how much should I say? Um, we say a seed syllable is, um, it's understood that everything grows out of space, right? First, there's nothing. Then there's a dot of, of, um, and so in nothing is the form. There's nothing, openness, that's body. And then there's speech, which is a seed syllable of something. Like it can be an emotion, it can be a, um, but the seed syllable of health is there, right? The seed I syllable yeah, yeah, of love yeah. is there. Right, it's, good. It's already, it comes with us. It's part of the makeup. And the seed syllable, and then that from there comes thoughts and then comes actions, right? So out of that seed comes our, our view, how we hold the world and our actions. So it's body, speech, and mind. Right, and, and, and most people, you know, it, it's i think it's our culture it's, it's i i don't know what it's it's also the times um but most people i think they feel you either got it or you don't kind of thing there's there's no there's no potential um it's like thanks to emptiness there's a potential for everything uh but but there even a basic badness or something like that there's like a we have something really bad that we have to mend <laughs> and that's yeah. the opposite of buddhism that's yep, right it is yeah. and, and now on to meditation and emptiness because i'm going to kind of swing into both of those things i should have done with emptiness first because we i just mentioned it but that's okay um i love what you wrote about meditation as being because meditation is is one of the um uh the practices that you use to get in touch to with what's inside of you both your intrinsic health and your ugly stuff right, right. <laughs> and then um but you i your line i i burst out laughing on this one is being a practice to aerate our minds i loved aerate because <laughs> that's such an easy way to describe um to describe something that many see as hard or it's hard to (laughs) well i think a lot you know i'm i you know i come at this maybe a little differently than because i didn't have as much trouble meditating for whatever god knows you know or buddha knows whatever reason um but um but one of the things i don't like about the the concept of of sort of like reinforcing that notion that meditation is hard is that people won't ever try it and they'll give up very fast because they think meditation is hard or impossible or something that something that others do correctly that they could never do correctly um but aerating sounds just that's just that's just digging up the weeds you know and it's just uh giving it a little air into it and it's it sounds kind of easy or something it sounds more like a process rather than the end product and i think most people when they come about meditating they think they have to reach the end product in the first time they meditate Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. Going after a result. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that it would be better if it were called um, befriending yourself. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> like sitting down and befriending yourself or being with yourself, 
or something. I, oh, I like being with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Just being with yourself. So depending on how we arrive on the path and we all arrive differently, some people sit down and they go, oh, finally, space. Oh my God, I've been waiting to hear. And other people sit down and they go, ah, space, I can't sit here. I've got things to do. Are you kidding? And it's all about our style, right? Right. And so um, either way on the meditation cushion, you have to meet yourself as you are. And I think, and you have to befriend that how it is, you know, you're not going to, it's not to change yourself. In fact, and even we approach, we approach meditation. I always think as Westerners, we think I'm going to try this and I'm, and then we approach it. Like we're going to put on, if you went into a store and you saw some beautiful clothes and you didn't look at the size and you just said, I'm going to try this on. That's right. Right. right? Because it's this, that's, it's like, you're not going to fit into everything or everything that's offered to you. Right. So I think this process of making meditation work and, 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 and finding your way to relax with yourself, eyes closed is a very different experience than eyes open. Right. Following the breath is very different than counting. And one thing I love about Michael Pollan's book about, um, or no, um, another book called um, Altered Traits. Did you see this oh, book? Oh, yes, yes, yes. By Richie Davidson. I haven't read it, but I've oh, heard it's of fantastic it. Because it's science that they've right. done. But what I love is they finally understand through mind imaging how different meditations have different effects on the mind. Wow. So the closed eye meditation takes you into peace. So when we're stirred up and freaking out, it's a good idea to close your eyes and come inside yourself. But when you want to wake up and be with your circumstances as they are, when you want to be fearless, practice with your eyes open in the space you're in, right? right. That trains you into the present moment with things as they are. Very different. Very different. Um effect on the mind so this is a science i mean like and yeah. we can find ways like how we sit how we and i'm a big believer like anyone can meditate to your point like that you don't have to make it harder right by trying to fit yourself into a box yeah and, yeah but to approach it from a perspective of tasting the effect of it what noticing what your mind does with it right right and so i don't think it's always seated that way often when you get meditation instructions like you do it this way yeah, exactly and that's like i don't present it that way i think try it on yeah you know figure out what works for you try this try that and become nuanced in your awareness on how the practice is affecting your mind so yeah, yeah. and you know i uh Every and everybody does respond differently. And but I was always taught like that. I was taught right away when I first learned to meditate about whether your eye, uh, your eyes were closed or whether your eyes were open, whether your your eyeballs went up or whether they went down, yeah. and the, the yeah. significance of that and how that oh, totally exit it totally cha changes because I kept falling asleep when I meditated, and so right. I said, "You need to roll your eyes back up and right. look, pretend like you're looking up instead of looking down at the floor in front of you, but continue right. to look." Well, with your eyes open and you won't fall asleep. And I never did fall because I used to like 
you know, might crash into the, to the, to the <laughs> closet. Um, so, so, and another thing, when I first met it, they ever, this is just the funny stories. And I think people <laughs> like this stuff. So they know how that they're not stupid. But um, uh, another thing, when I first learned to meditate, I I could not follow my breath. I right. every I hyperventilated every single time. And I remember <laughs> my first meditation class. I raised my hand like a dope. There was a llama there and a couple other people there, and I said, "How do you do this without hyperventilating?" And everybody just looked at me like I was nuts. Like they didn't understand why would I be hyperventilating. It was like. Well, don't you hyperventilate when you look at your breath so much? Aren't you? I mean, so I had to learn to meditate by listening to sounds. Uh-huh. Great. Yeah. So, see, was, so you found methods and there's so many methods of mine. Well, I can I can do breath now, but yeah. I could I couldn't at first, right. but there are yeah. so many methods. And I think I think it's so nice that the one nice thing about information being available is that that information is now available. Yes. And we're in a different era of, you know, the mindfulness movement has done its work and, you know, I mean, so many people are learning the benefit of um, synchronizing their body, breath and mind in the present moment is, is incredibly beneficial it just is. for calming down the nervous system for starters. Yeah. All the trauma work that people are starting to really understand. So we're in a wonderful time in that way. In that way. <laughs> um, let's let a couple other things I wanted to get at before we will look like I have a few more notes here, but we'll, it, whenever it shouldn't be too long. Um, you know, another thing we talked about emptiness. And I said yeah. before that nothing is possible without emptiness. And you refer to or in your karuna training refer to emptiness as unbound openness which is yeah. i love that unbound openness i li like just both words together there um and um and that that that's good and that that circles back to the space concept that you were getting at before yeah. is there any other little things you want to add to like space well, yeah, I, I'll just openness. note that Unbound Openness is a quote from Judy Leaf. Who yes, it was Judy Leaf. That's right. Has her own um, beautiful body. And she was a teacher for me when I was a student at Naropa. So, um, and she told that at a, a Buddhist Christian conference. Because oh, Christians like emptiness. What is this? Emptiness? <laughs> dead to me. And she called it Unbound Openness. And it made me cry when I heard it. And then, yeah. so, um so I stole that ever since. But it's um, perfect. This, this notion of um, it's like I'll, I'll bring it to a Native American because I just had a, a teaching from someone named Duncan Grady, who's a Blackfoot. And he talks about eagle's view versus wow. mouse view. So she's raising, she's opening her, her opening yeah. her. Or arms. My arms. The eagle's view, the perspective of eagle's view, open mind, wide oh, mind, right. to mouth view, right? Right. He talks about those different perspectives, which are on a continuum, which is what I like about this notion of emptiness. It's not like um, this openness occurs in degrees, right? Yeah. We soften and the mind widens. We soften towards vulnerability and the mind widens. And it goes directly with our ability to um, trust and be touched. Right. You know, we open in accord to trust and 
and uh, relaxation, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can condition that in our being. We can, can just like we yeah. condition the trauma, can right. condition us in a way to constrict, we can condition ourselves to open. And so anytime we hit one of those not knowing panics, we can train <laughs> ourselves to feel, use the energy that we're feeling like fear in our heart or the gut clench or whatever it is. If our family member has said something they've said a million times that we can't say. <laughs> we, we hold that and just uh, like almost like uh, move close to it in a way we soften towards it in right. a way lets us relax and open. So it might be just a little bit of opening, but at least we're not in our fight or flight, right? So we're right. learning how to soften ourselves towards everything because, you know, we're soft-bodied beings. Yeah. Holes, you know, we're very tender. Right. We're very tender and vulnerable in our nature. And somehow that didn't get prized in the patriarchy so we <laughs> no no because <laughs> no. it's such a beautiful thing you know like whenever i don't know i have an 18 year old little pug she's blind and deaf <laughs> and she can't walk and and she just so loving in her presence and and i can feel that because i'm open to her right and so right. this 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 openness allows us to value everything yeah, that's the vulnerability thing you were touching on before. And that, that is, this talks to the compassion and exchange thing that you talk about in Karuna training. I think unless you can uh, get there with yourself, right, open to the vulnerability of yourself, which mostly we push away, like in trauma right. work. I mean, I've gone through trauma, so I, I understand that. And, and it's like, um, uh, you know, you, you bury, you push away, you compartmentalize, you have all these methodologies to deal with it other than dealing with it. Right. Other than, right. Looking yeah. at it, other than feeling it. And yeah. it's like exactly. you, I, my, I, my, um, my therapist told me you've spent all your life being very good at not dealing with this at all. <laughs> so, and that's an art. I mean, it's an art in itself. It's like those coping me mechanisms that we have, we shouldn't demonize those either because they also save our lives, right? Sometimes. Well, so, yeah. So, you know, it's the, this is the thing, like the thing about psychology, we have to be careful about if it's got a lot of right and wrong, good and bad in it. Oh, good. Point. And the world yes. is not like that. No. The world is in gradations, right? It's good today and bad tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> look at the food industry. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that that's that's true. I I have an autoimmune il illness and uh -huh. and 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 <laughs> systemic lupus, and it it actually caused me to go bald this year. Um, with yeah. uh with alopecia, as I was pointing out to you. Well, not that I didn't have to point it out to you. You saw I was bald, but um. <laughs> But it's funny on these forums where people ask, will my hair grow back? Will this happen? Will that happen? It's like, well, <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, there is no answer to this because if you have any experience with autoimmune diseases, right. um, most people are used to going to the doctor and getting something 
because that's the model, right? It's like, right. like you were saying, that's the model. It's like, they're going to fix you all up. Don't worry. They're going to fix you all up. They're going to give you this, or they're going to give you that. Well, I've lived with this illness my whole life. And pretty much I learned that no, they're not going to fix me all up. And probably what they give me is going to make me feel worse and probably make everything worse. And, and, and it's like, I'm perfectly content telling my doctors, sorry, you don't have a big enough toolbox. You don't understand this yet. So I'm going to do my own thing and deal with it. So people are not used to it's still it's it really comes back to that unknowing the state and state of not knowing but there is that sense like you said the pathology you know pathologizing um um psychological conditions pathologizing anything um and, and, all of it the the stigma but yeah of- exactly but it's like if we if we can and i think the beauty of your book that you can get from this Really, if if to, if I were to sum it up in like just a couple of words, I would say the beauty is is that it's it's the it's the uh, it's the um, exploring how to be vulnerable and open or making friends with yourself, as you said, is what's going to help you make friends with everyone else. Because if you're you know, people get on the Bodhisattva path. They think they're on the Bodhisattva. Well, how can, you know, this, this, this unbelievable job that you're taught that you have to do as a Bodhisattva is save all beings, right? But it's like impossible, can't do that. But you can, because all you have to do is open to yourself, right? And yes, then it goes. And it genuinely open to yourself because, as we know, like Buddhism and meditation can be used just like everything else to bypass certain things yeah. that we don't like. I'm just going to sit here in bliss and space in my little God realm. And, you know, and instead of, um, you know, the, the deep work that it takes. And I have to be totally transparent too, and I am always with uh, Karuna students that, you know, I've been teaching this stuff forever, and I I'm the first one like when something like a, a headline comes or someone cuts me off in trap. You know, I'm very reactive. So you teach what you need to learn, right? So it's <laughs> like I can be so reactive so quick, but I've also learned to notice when I'm reactive. Yeah. That's yeah. worth so much, you know, and then I have a choice. Am I going to act this out <laughs> just because it's fun <laughs> or am I going to, um, you know, really work with this? And usually that answer to that, what, which way I go depends on the circumstances I'm in and the cost of it. Right. I'm afraid it's like, because it's, you know, this mental conditioning we come with is, is very deeply ingrained in us. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, that some of us are reactive and emotional. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm probably never going to change that in this life, you know, and I can kind of okay, you know, be responsible for my mind. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a teacher that said, um, he, he used to, they used to go to retreats and then these people would gather around afterwards and they'd come up to him and say, I've been practicing 
for uh, I've been meditating and practicing the Dharma for 20 years and not a doggone thing has changed. And he would say, well, then you're not practicing because the deal is, is not so much that you have changed. It's that, like you said, and, and I always tell uh, the people, my podcast and my Sangha, it's, 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 it, once you noticed a thing about yourself, like being reactive, in my case, reactive and anger, it goes and go to long. I have yeah. both of those things really bad. Um, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, good. Here we are bonding again. Um, so, um, but the, th- but the thing about it is, is that is like, um, I didn't you I used to just do it and then notice it like a couple days later when when the shit hit, you know, when you had to deal with the consequences. Now I know it as soon as it's happening. And like you said, it's that it's 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 the the time between the doing it and knowing that you're doing it is the sign of the practice. Right. If that shrinks your right. practice is good but right. you're like you said you you it's <laughs> the one good thing about buddha dharma you always have the option to act like a jerk anyway right yeah. <laughs> that's true yeah and it's it's interesting i mean it's just such a great you know wearing off like you know not even like the slightest of a of a fingernail's width <laughs> right um, like just tiny slivers of awareness that wear down these right. habits mind so that you become more attuned to your effect on other people exactly exactly yeah you know we're the last to see our effect on other people often so although we do or sometimes we see it and in my case i'll say sometimes i see it especially with people very very close to me and and i and it still doesn't stop me for whatever reason um so (laughs) (laughs) but there's uh (laughs) melissa i there's so much more we could talk about. I'd love to have a million hours here, but I'm going to be mindful of your time. Um, it, but before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to mention or say that I didn't mention or ask or? No, but I just want to commend you, uh, Wendy, for um, holding a forum about everyday Buddhism, because that's when, in my opinion, when the Dharma when rock meets bone is like how we bring it. It's all very exotic and everything still Buddhism, <laughs> but really it's so practical. Exactly. It's so practical and so helpful. And so when one doesn't need to be a Buddhist to practice. Right. And so the thing that I feel is like this, this body of wisdom is so it's, it's human practice. Yeah. And so you've really um, created, I like, I liked, your uh, title of your your podcast and your approach because you really want to bring everything to earth so thank you for that i commend oh, you and thank you and and i will encourage everyone to read your book um i am going to put links into the show notes and everything um and we'll say goodbye now and hopefully we'll meet again and when you write another book or something <laughs> okay thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed and were inspired by the conversation um, between myself and Melissa as much as I was. Next up, some announcements. Don't forget that you can join me and our Sangha mates in the private donation-supported everyday Sangha, which meets virtually 
via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha is currently at the beginning of a new format and a new book study, so now would be the perfect time to consider joining. And also, consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and all the related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, an education series, a private um, community platform that's not on Facebook, the Introduction to Buddhism class, and the new bonus contemplation podcasts. Also coming soon um, is a new partner to my Substack journal that I keep, which is free. Um, one of the things that I'm featuring now in my Substack writings uh, is something called Sutra Snippets. Sutra Snippets is a, a little everyday glimpses um, from different sutras of my choosing. Um, something I will, that's going on now, but I will soon be announcing an uh, adjunct audio version um, of my of my Substack journal, and it's called Everyday Buddhism Off the Cuff. It's kind of like a little podcast, but it's off the cuff because it's just me rambling about my Substack journal. Sometimes it's just a voiceover, or uh, I could also just do some random talking about what I wrote on my Substack. So look for that. I'll let you know when it happens. And if you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any social media platforms we post in, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha. Go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on the tab that says Join Community or Sangha. I can't stress enough how important it is to this podcast and to the related groups to receive your donations. You know, I don't seek any sponsors. I don't ask for financial commitments through paid podcast memberships, like private podcasts. So my work and the cost of the infrastructure needed to support what I do is completely self-funded except for your donations. And I must say this is getting harder and harder to maintain with the, with the rising cost of everything these days. Uh, and I'm sure you feel it too. So I can understand if, uh, it's, if it's not something you are ready to do, but um, a one-time donation would be great. Or there are other ways to help me out. Um, you can consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or the donation tab on my website and which you can find the links to these things on my show notes. You can also rate, review the podcast because the more people you share the podcast with, the better off it is for me um, and the podcast, and the better off it is for my membership community. It drives more people to it. And it's important to share the podcast with others if you find it helpful in your life. You know, if you could take a minute just to comment so people will know why you love everyday Buddhism. 
So that's it for all the announcements. Until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. 